Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Jordans, here with your producer, Molly Stevens. And here on the Leaders Table podcast, it is our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to help empower you. This episode, we're joined by the Chief of Staff for Los Angeles Unified School District Board Member, Ref Rodriguez. Asa Laman is a former teacher and a fire starter who joins us for a deep dive on translating teaching experience into policy and so much more. Yeah, and what's exciting here is listeners are going to hear Asel talk about her experience as a teacher in Brooklyn and in Los Angeles and how that influences her policy career and specifically the recommendations she brings to her board member every day. What I find so valuable in this conversation is Asel's combination of big picture vision, you know, thinking about how we transform schools into community yeah. hubs, combined with her advice on the nuts and bolts of policy careers and how to network to find your next policy role. Yep. And those nuts and bolts are the best parts of our chat. There are lots of practical items here waiting for the listeners. Um, Asel talks about how she manages her career and her day-to-day, how she gets things d- done in the car in Los Angeles traffic. She's another list maker, of course. And there are lots and lots of practical gems for those who want to do what she does. No doubt. This is definitely a woman who gets things done. And in that, she's really an inspiration to me. Take a listen to our conversation with Asel Aman at the Leader's Table. So Asa Laman, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us, talking about your career, talking about um, your experiences as a, as a teacher and now as a chief of staff for, an L, for a, a member of the LA Unified School District. Um, you've been a chief of staff since 2015 for Ref Rodriguez in LA. I also know you've taught in Brooklyn and taught in LA, bringing actual teaching experience to the to the work of making policy, which is really excited. We look forward to, to talking with you a little bit about your career, your steps, and uh, and all that's come to bring you to to the day. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, let's start off. Ta- just talk to me a little bit about what it is to be a chief of staff to to the LA Unified School District. I mean, LA is. One of the most diverse, uh, the largest, if not the second largest school, uh, urban school district in the country, I believe. Um, what, what's your day to day like? What, what's, uh, what does it mean to be a chief of staff? 
Correct. Thank you. Um, so I'm the chief of staff, um, as you said, um, to actually one of the LA Unified School Board members. And as you said, it's the second largest school district and the school board member, um, there's seven school elected school board members. Mm-hmm. So my board member is Ref Rodriguez and every office, just like any elected office, right? Um, the, the roles and the teams and the styles are very different. Um, so, but in our office, um, and we're a small office, we have about a hunt, um, there's about 140 schools, um, district schools in our district alone, and then 170, including independent charter schools. And we, um, we are essentially, we're in our second year and we spent our first year trying to implement his vision. So he's newly elected in 2015 and we spent mm-hmm. the first year just really trying to have a presence in the district. And um, so I imagine that um, maybe our day-to-day may change over the years. Um, but my favorite part, um, I like to say, of my job is um, school visits. So we each have schools, so we divide our schools amongst the five of us. Um, and I have, and we try to have uh, uh, certain areas of the district. Um, so I have parts of Northeast LA and then I have South Central. And I love going to schools, um, and talking to the principals, talking, meeting some of the teachers, going into the classrooms and seeing what teaching and learning looks like now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of, go ahead. I was just wondering, what what are some of the things that you've learned, uh, through those visits? What are the, what are the things that are just kind of like glaring at you? Um, as you get to interact with so many teachers, so many leaders, and so many students? Definitely the needs of each school are so different, right? And so even if you think of just on paper, you think of the demographics of the school and, oh, this is a Title I school. This has an English learner population of X, and this has um, this is in this area uh, with this enrollment. Um, but once you go to the school, even though it's in the same neighborhood, they're totally different and the needs are totally different. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think what I like seeing is, um, when I was teaching, we didn't have the common core. So I actually do like going into the classrooms and seeing, um, the, the teachers and the students engaged in the common core. Um, and again, that looks different, right? Um, people respond to it differently and so they're implementing it, um, differently as well. And so I'll... Um, also connect with the principals to see what he or she is doing to try to um, support the teachers, right, and the students um, to adjust to the Common Core, especially with the testing. So that's definitely different. Um, and then sometimes you just see things in terms of differences in the campus itself, right? You see some newer buildings and some, some really clean buildings. You see some older um, buildings and some historical ones, too. Um, and then you see some have a lot of green on the campus and some do not, right? Some are pretty much, um, right, they're pretty barren and it's all asphalt. Um, and so when we're walking the campuses, we, we talk to our principals and ask them, um, what is it that you need and how can we support you, right? Because that's what our office does. But then we also ask them, like, what would, what's kind of like a wish list, right? Um because we, our board office has, um, we were responsible for construction bond dollars as well. And mm-hmm. so sometimes they they ask for, I really, really need more technology in our campus. A lot of our, that's the number one ask from our schools is technology. And mm-hmm. so we can use bond dollars to like purchase, like to build them a computer lab on their campus mm-hmm. or to build them shade because the kids are playing in the sun, right? Um, so we can build a little shade shelter um, that the kids can sit underneath. Um, so it's, it's definitely interesting. 
So, Asel, it, it sounds like um, sounds like some of your most important learnings are that that the needs are so diverse, and that schools are very different, and all of the the various needs that 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 kids, that families, that all the people that interact with these buildings are are so different that it drives um, it probably drives you to very different directions. I'm wondering though if you could talk a little bit about how your experiences as a teacher in Brooklyn, where I grew up, and and in LA. Uh, influence the way that you you approach the that understanding of needs and how that helps you to be uh, a good of good counsel to your to your board member. Absolutely, um, I actually not a day goes by where I don't think of my students in Brooklyn. Right, mm. um, it was actually quite coincidental. Um, earlier this week, we've been well in the in the school district. We've been dealing, especially in the southeast, with this very large issue around um, the closing of a lead battery plant, um, an Exide facility in the southeast. And then now we're, we've been really outreaching to our communities in terms of making sure that they're informed that, one, that their school, what the condition of the soil is of their school, um, but then also their neighborhoods, that they should get blood tested, that they should check their soil, right? Um, and And I remember we were going through this, like, essentially trying to, because it got a lot of media attention. And so we were um, trying to um, troubleshoot and trying to make sure we're being proactive, trying to make sure the communication's good. And it was getting very, um, like, very overwhelming in the office, I will say. And then I suddenly get a text from a parent, a former parent of a student that I taught in Brooklyn. Um, so she was my third grader, and now she's going to be a senior. She Or she is a senior now. Um, and the parent, like, we still keep in touch. Um, and the parent sent me a photo of that class photo, right, you take as a class. So I'm, mm-hmm. like, the teacher, and we're all standing up on the risers, right? Um, and it's, like, the, the picture of her in third grade and my class in third grade. Wow, and, and I showed it to all, yes, and it was such a coincidence. And I showed it to all of my colleagues, and I said, this is the kind of stuff that grounds me, right? Yeah, my yeah. experiences with my students just absolutely grounds me, and this is why I do what I do. Um, and I feel very fortunate to be surrounded by a team and an elected official that is also driven by the same sets of values and the same commitment um, to our students, um, especially our students that um, that that have the highest needs and just have a lot of complexities in their life, right? And and especially for our parents that often don't have a voice and have expressed to the, us that they feel have have felt neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, so that. My experience in Brooklyn, absolutely. Um, is what school did you teach day. at in Brooklyn? What what teach, I taught at public. Teach at? It was public school two twenty four in East New York, Hale A Woodruff. Oh wow! So I grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and I know that uh, East New York has always been a very very high need place, a very 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 tough place to teach. So kudos to you. Yeah. You you say in a in an interview online that the underlying purpose of a transformative leader is the focus on social justice, civic engagement, and democracy. And, you know, I read those words and I think, I just want to unpack each of those things, a transformative leader versus just a leader, social justice, and civic engagement, and democracy. There's so much in that, in those concepts about both responsibilities and opportunity, right? Engagement of people in in the struggle toward equity 
as well as the the transformation in the way that that the system um, either creates opportunity or separates people from those opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about how that how those thoughts or how that philosophy helps you as you are are trying to help uh, help your member to decide on what issues to take on or or what is going to be important? Absolutely. Um, so, and even in terms of a transformative leader, um, and I do want to make, I think my, my doctoral program has really helped us hone in on the difference between like a transformative leader versus a transformational one, right? Versus a leader, right? Um, but a transformational leader is the type that um, sees is something that needs to happen and a change that needs to happen and they want to fix it, right? And so maybe they implement a program that tries to fix that change, right? Um, where a transformative leader goes even above and beyond that and says, well, the need that I have identified is because this need is a barrier um, or because this is a barrier to everything that you just said, right? Social mm. justice issues to democracy to civic engagement and everything I do is going to be driven towards working towards those goals, right, and those values. Um, and I actually feel very fortunate that my board member is driven by the same thing um, and that that is actually the way he and thus our entire office thinks and operates and um, plans ourselves and strategizes um, around those goals. Um, and so ultimately what his are, are the kind of like a model, motto for our office is, and for, by our, from our board member, is that excellent public schools equal thriving communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really that schools are the anchor of the community. They are the hub of the community. They're in the center. Everybody typically knows that where the local school is, right? And so what if they can be places that, um, like he likes to say, like where we open up our gates. And right now they are, um, most of our schools, except a handful, I think, have um, gates around them, right? But like literally let's open them up to the community, right? Let's let them engage more meaningfully and not just um, parent-teacher conferences, right, or back-to-school night. Um, and then even in that, like how are we engaging local residents and community members in that way, right? We're just targeting families. Um, so, like, how do we open it up to our families and to other community members and then ultimately help them identify, okay, what are the, listen to them, what are the issues that are most pressing to you, what are the needs that you see in, in your school and in this community, and then how can we support you and help give you the tools to, to bring that change yourself, right, and to advocate yourself, because ultimately we want this work to, to outlive us. Right. So if we only do one term and the board member doesn't run again and he's done in four and a half years, the work should live on through the community, the community member that he's touched. Mm. You know, it's uh, it, it's unique to hear of a leader talk about uh, really understanding that our time in, a, in any position is not it, it's not forever. Right. I think that the in, in America, mm-hmm. kind of the idea is that all oh, politicians are just around for a long time. But that's not always the case. Right. A school board member does have a term and there's not a there's not a guarantee that um, that that member is going to be in that position for a long time, even to see the change, even a, a significant vision come to cross. So uh, come to to fruition within their term within the time that they'll have in that office. So how do you how do you choose then? How do you help your member choose what to do on a week to week or a month to month or a term to term basis? 
Yeah, and I think after, um, like after our first year, the first year was really about, right, he just came off of the campaign. Mm-hmm. And so we really were pushing and making folks known what, uh, like, his platform is, and he calls it um, the ecosystem of excellence, right? And these are essentially the five components that he ran, that he ran on, right? Um, so strengthening um, the middle grade years for our students, local, um, local control for our communities, um, empowering our teachers, um, viewing and really engaging our families as partners. Um, and having really high quality options for our students and families. Um, mm-hmm. And so we really spent that first year just kind of looking through that, right? Um, and and um, sharing that um, system, that ecosystem with our, our community members. But this year now, after we've met with a lot of people, um, including external people and internal people within the district, I think it's been great because we've been able to see, okay, what are what are the barriers to trying to make some of these things happen, right? Um, what is the red tape, to be honest, in the district, um, that kind of, or or kind of a status quo kind of thinking in the sense where um, people have told us, oh, well, we've never thought of it that way and we've always done it this way, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then even externally, some folks are just like, I don't understand, why can't you just open up the gates and why can't I be on the campus? Well, it's not that simple. There is risk and there's insurance and there's liability, right? Um, the safety of our kids, right? Mm-hmm. So I think now we spent this, after this year of just really listening and engaging our mem- our community members, um, we're really start- starting to strategize. Okay, what are we going to do and what is realistic um, for this first the second mm. year, right? And that's kind of what I mentioned about, um, like, really opening up our schools and uh, mm. especially a, an issue around joint use. Um, and so we've been ab- able to identify, okay, board member, based on what we've seen, based on the calls that we get from community members, we can really tell there's an opportunity here where um, folks really want us to talk about how can we partner better with our schools mm. and have them more, be more accessible. Right. And so that we talked as a group and we said, yes, absolutely. Let that be what he's known for, for his term, because we have a feeling it's going to take a while. Right. To open to really open up our schools. Um, So it's great. Yeah. In the sense that we're really taking feedback from everyone, from what we're listening, what we're hearing, what we're learning. And we're really using it to strategize around what his what his vision should evolve into for the rest of his term. It sounds like a very active learning stance, right? Like you you start you start a process of of seeking change with ideas, and then influencing that with what's actually going on just seems like a very. It seems like one to be very humbling to a leader, but very very necessary to make sure that solutions are actually connected to to realities. So kudos for the, for that. Yeah. Have so. Asel, have you always been a change maker? Have you always been um, the the one to try to try to move things around or or fight what's wrong or to change things for for the better? I would say yeah, and even to my my cousins would even tease me when I was a kid, and they would say they would call me Mother Teresa, but like <laughs> that and that and they would make fun of me or and people would buy me quote like the bags because my favorite quote was Gandhi's be the change you wish to see in the world and people yeah. would buy me like tote bags and keychains um so yeah and I think but this is now I'm in a place in my life where I feel like everything's coming together and I have a lot of direction which is really yeah. exciting it's very exciting how do you um how do you go though from Brooklyn school teacher uh 
to 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 LA school teacher to chief of staff though that, that's not something that most teachers get to do it's not doesn't seem possible for a lot of people who are in the classroom kind of fighting the good fight serving students to say who know that they want to make a bigger impact they know that they want to be a part of the process they know that they would want to be doing exactly what you're doing but it just doesn't seem that possible to get there how did, how did you do that how did you make that transition yeah, I definitely had a lot of people um, along the way that supported me um, and just like a lot of opportunities um, sometimes that would fall in my lap, right, and I would see them. Um, right, so after teaching um, in Brooklyn, right, and then in in West L.A. and kind of more um, at, at a private independent school, right, um, where the, the tuition was about 18000 at the time, right, it just really exposed um, my my world to just like the real inequities, right? Um, and just the different experiences that students have in both of those settings. And so that exactly, just like you said, I wanted to find a way, okay, how can I have um, a larger impact that, that ultimately, because I kept thinking back to my students in Brooklyn, right? And some of the things that public school teachers need to do because it's required, right? Because, um, you know, somebody passed a law or, is, is telling us or, right, sent a memo and now we have to do something, right? And mm-hmm. that really kept bothering me. Like, how do I, how do I have more of, a, like, um, how do I have an impact on and have systemic change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, I knew, I knew I needed more skills and I knew that I was ready to, to engage in that kind of thinking, but I wasn't quite there yet, right? And so that's why I went to public, um, public policy school, um, at the Goldman School in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really as I like look back at it, I think what I really gained, um, from that experience is number one, how to ask the right question, right? Um, so that you get the information that you need so that number two, you can weigh your options and really kind of do right with like a cost benefit analysis of those options. And number three, think strategically to then take those options and do something about it, be very strategic about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so obviously in, a, in a, an elected office um, and a, in this kind of political setting, strategy is everything, right? Um, and sometimes things that make sense or things that seem so practical are not always the way that you want to pursue it, right? And so you kind of have to like build relationships with people across across the table to then see what their interests are so that you can figure out how to achieve your goal, right? Um, but using and capitalizing on their interests, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it was a lot of things that I learned in graduate school. And then ultimately, I actually did a fellowship after graduate school because I was looking for a job for like six months and it was really difficult. Um, but I did a fellowship with um, Lee and um, it was a policy and advocacy fellowship, and I got placed with an organization. And then it was one of those things where I just did a lot of informational interviews so that I could understand the landscape of, like, L.A., my home that I was returning to after four years mm-hmm. or um, two years away, two years away. And um, I just did a lot of informational interviews, and somebody said, hey, I know a friend, and then a friend recommended me to a friend that ultimately knew about a position that was open in the uh, school board. Um, and that's kind of how I got my in. That never happens to me. I'm normally the type that applies for nine things and maybe gets called back twice, right? Um, but this one literally fell in uh, fell in my lap, um, and I just really um, seized it. 
You know, the common reframe around uh, policymaking circles is that the folks that are making education policy at multiple levels typically have never been in a classroom. They don't know what, it's, what mm-hmm. the realities are like. They've never had to um, meet the demands of of um, of standards or of um, or of a uh, of a group of, uh, of families who want more for their kids, or they've mm-hmm. never known what, what it's like to deliver a curriculum themselves. Um, and you are the exact opposite of that. You have real bona fide teaching experiences in two big places. How does that um, how does that change the way that you are the, the way that you approach the work and uh, and ultimately what you think is important? Absolutely. Um... Because at the end of our day, the end of the day, the teachers are the ones that have the most, um, right, um, moments with the child, right, um, during the school day. So it definitely drives me, even when I was in policy school and I was, um, like, I, you know, I was aspiring to, to either to work for a school board member or something be close to one. So honestly, this is like a dream job for me. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember looking up all of their bios um, and seeing what their different experiences were, right? And what's really um, fascinating now on the school board, actually, is that the majority of the seven school board members are educators. And that's, and that, that's actually different from a few years ago. Um, and so they've either been a teacher, a principal, a local superintendent, um, an administrator in the district. And so it's actually fascinating to see um, what certain, what things they highlight and what things that they, um, you know, mm-hmm. that their focus is um, for their own board district. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that, like, the teaching experience, like, there were, there were periods where there weren't as many educators, right, um, that I was surrounded by, um, especially in this work. And, and I, I, even though I couldn't be the voice for, I could only be the voice for myself as a former teacher, right? I knew um, I knew it was important to to show that voice, right? And so when conversations would happen about, um, I think we should do this, and well, we could just do it at this time of the day because it's not a big deal. I would say, no, actually, teachers don't like that, right? Like I know from my experience in working just with different colleagues, like we should probably do this, or maybe we can do something like this because this is typically the thing that educators like to see right mm. um so i definitely would use my um teaching experience um obviously as an asset because it is um in in terms of sharing the work um with other people and especially now with some colleagues that have never taught um their perspective is just going to be different because they haven't been in the classroom and i think it's important that everyone ground ourselves in what that experience is like in the classroom and so I, I definitely do my, the best I can to ground folks when I can tell they're not really thinking about it. Absolutely. You know, I regular, le- regularly call myself a survivor of New York City public schools. I uh, grew up in Brooklyn and barely, barely survived the experience and got, went on to, to college and, and everything. But I, mm-hmm. I just, you'll always have a very, very uh, bright space in my heart for your work in, in Brooklyn, ASOL. So thank you for, for bringing that to the decisions you make for the kids of L.A. Th- these days. Let me uh, just want to ask you about a couple more things. I'm curious about um, curious about a couple of. Uh, uh, I want to ask you about uh, identity, and I want to ask you about some of the practical things that you do you use to keep yourself on track and together. Um, so let's start. Uh, you know, you're you're a woman in the policymaking space. You're a woman and a chief of staff. 
um, and all that that means. How are the, how have you both been challenged, um, and, and strengthened by that fact that you, that you bring your, your gender into the policymaking space every single day? Great question. And actually as, um, and as a woman of color and mm-hmm. also a woman, um, and folks can't see me, but I'm very petite and I have a very young face. I look the same as I did on my 16 year old, um, driver's license. Um, <laughs> so I think people, um, just, you know, they, they have perceptions of me right away. They see me and they think they know me, right? Or they mm-hmm. think they, or they judge me, right? I think it's at times it has been challenging. It has been challenging, um, especially if I'm not um, surrounded by um, other folks of color um, and and, and then trying to channel um, a perspective that I feel sometimes um, that's missing, but that also I'm trying to find the right words, right, to to tell people so that it resonates with them, Um, especially when people have different experiences. It's hard for sometimes folks to relate to something they don't know, right, and to Mm -hmm. something they didn't live. And so some folks want to hear about research on that or data on that, where sometimes you just have to tell them, like, honestly, that, that was my, that was what I lived, right? And mm-hmm. that's what my life was. That was what my friends were. And lived experiences are just as valuable, right? Um, so I definitely, it has definitely, um, it's been a part of me and it's been with me, my identity, um, and, and kind of, I've been very aware. I'm very, very socially aware and can can tell when people, you know, I can tell our passing judgment and, and it just means that I just need a, I just need a, you know, always have my, always step up my game, right? Mm. I always need to be like a real, the, a really smart and informed person. I need to be a smart and informed person in the room. I need to be, I need a, I can't be afraid to, to share my voice. And over time, I've actually seen myself grow um, in terms of being more vocal and being more, um, you know, just like just unafraid to to call people out sometimes when they need to, um, but also very careful in terms of calling people out in a way that doesn't um, I, um, um, that doesn't like ostracize them or doesn't like draw too much attention to them because once once people get embarrassed and they get defensive, right? So I'm very aware of how to like navigate um, kind of. Um, interaction so that people feel comfortable and I do a lot through humor right so my people that know me um, I'm very uh, um, I, I'm a, uh, you know like I have a crass um, kind of um, sense of humor sometimes where I'm very sarcastic but mm-hmm. I use my humor to like lighten the situation right mm-hmm. and to make people feel comfortable and then like once I kind of like get their buy-in there I then um, um, I like come full force, right? And I come full force with my opinions and what I think should happen and with my values, right? Um, so it has been challenging at times because I feel like I, I did have to prove myself, right, um, over the years and to just, like, prove my worth and to prove, like, liter- literally and financially, but then also, like, I am an asset to this office and to this team and here's why, right? Um, and And sometimes I have seen where sometimes I'm Maybe I'm pro- I'm having to prove it a little bit more than others, right? Like why? Mm-hmm. Like I would question that sometimes. Why? Do, why am I being questioned, right? Is there something here? But ultimately, I just continue to push on and to prove, and essentially, right, to prove people wrong or um, to give them a real picture of of who I am and what I'm about. 
do you feel you're still proving yourself? I actually feel I feel very welcomed in the space I'm in, like um, professionally and then also in my um, doctoral program and the friends over time that I'm like, these are this is who I'm going to surround myself by, right? Um, so in this professional space, um, we're actually, our entire office is actually of color. Um, and a lot of them um, have come from the community that we're serving, right? Um, so that's been, it's been very empowering actually to see, um, to be surrounded by people that um, have gone off, done different things, right? Lawyer, we have a lawyer, a social worker, right? Um, and that they've come back to give back to the um, the community that they grew up in, whether it's a specific community and some are very lucky or even just LA, that they've come back to LA to give back. It's remarkable. So I I want to spend a few minutes just in our last few minutes together just talking about how you keep it all together, Asel. You are chief of staff. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what what's the most important thing on your phone or your or the most important thing you do on a daily basis, either to organize your time or just to keep your sanity between being a doctoral candidate, um, uh, being a chief of staff and doing all the other things that you do in the, in the service aspects of your life, family, everything else. What what keeps it together for you? Definitely in terms of um, strategy, I'm definitely strategic and intentional about my time, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I knew I was going to have to, and that was the advice that we got entering the doctoral program, is like you really need to communicate to your family and your friends kind of the expectations of the program, right? So that they're not like, where have you been the past two years, right? Um, but also um, just really learn how to manage your time, right? And I think that's what a, a lot of people struggle with, right? Especially in the States, we struggle with like um, work-life balance or we struggle with managing time. Um, I will I will own up to the fact that I still struggle with it, right? But I've learned where... Um, like my peak hours, like I'm not, I'm a night person. So I come home, I decompress for a little bit. I unwind, have dinner, um, spend some time with my partner. And then I'll, I'll be on my computer from like 10 to two or 10 to one. And it's not, but that's actually what works for me where some, I know some of my colleagues, especially in the doctoral program, they're morning people. So they would prefer to wake up at four or five and do the work in the morning. Right. Um, so in terms of like school, I've just like tried to really, okay, where, where am I most productive and when, when is a good time for me? And I like, I was, and I just set that time aside. In terms of the everyday work, the everyday work of an elected office and then also of a chief of staff, right? I think it changes all the time. One thing I say is that my week, what I think I know, so it's Friday, actually, when we're recording this interview and what I think I know about my week next week, I probably only know about 65% of it. So even though I have my calendar in front of me, even though I know what to expect, there's, there's about like 35% of things that just jump up out of nowhere, right? Mm. And now some of them are crises and we are trying to manage them. Or some of them are just things like, um, hey, I need this done and I actually need it done right now. Can you, can you, can you make the call, right? And so I think I do the best I can. I don't know if I'm 100% happy yet with my system, but I definitely do. I don't even have like fancy fancy apps or anything to try to help me. I use reminders a lot, right? I, I use Siri a lot. Thank goodness for um, being able to dictate to your phone now. I get a lot <laughs> accomplished in my car with that dictation button. Um, so, I, yeah, I set a lot of reminders. I set a lot of reminders on my calendar. I block off time on my calendar. I block off, like, work time. I block off time for um, family and friends, right? I, I really just... Mm-hmm. But then I'll say, okay, I can do maybe 
one or two lunches and a dinner this week. But then I have to also make sure I need, I'm with my family. I'm with my partner, right? Um, so, and then, so like just time-wise, I'm definitely, I try to be very strategic, right? Um, and then work-wise, I think um, the email, um, folks that know me and my staff, they know that I struggle the most with email because um, my inbox, I think my inbox today is like 330, right? <laughs> so I really need to get on that. Um, but I think like between emails and phone calls, um, again, I get a lot accomplished um, in on drive, right? I make a lot of phone calls on the drive. I dictate a lot. Um, but I don't, unfortunately, I don't have any fancy systems. I always have a, a journal on me of some sort because every time I'm somewhere, I, I'm thinking about something, right? Whether it's school and my dissertation or whether it's, um, oh, I need to make sure that we remind staff about the following, right? Um, so I always have a journal on me, and if I don't, right, I use the, I use my phone um, and send yeah. emails to myself so that it pops up the next day kind of thing. So it's kind of helpful to get the idea or the need or the, the thing to do out of your head so you don't have to worry about it for the moment? Yes, I am absolutely yeah. that person. I have post-its, yeah. right, so that – and I'm the type that I – Fill up the post-it, I cross them all off, and I throw it out, right? But I know if I don't write something down, it's gone. It's, it's left my brain forever. <laughs> I find that there is nothing more satisfying in life than crossing some, physically crossing something off of a list that you made that you have to do. Like, like it's just – it's so much better than, like, you know, on, on your – on Evernote or something, checking the box. But literally crossing out yeah. is done is like, ah, oh, thank you, God. It's, it's <laughs> we, got, yeah. we got to do that. <laughs> and using like a colored pen or a red pen to cross it off. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Very satisfying. <All> satisfying. <laughs> Asel, thank you so very much for this. Thank you for all that you, you do on the behalf of, of the kids in LA. Um, and just for your, your commitment to real impact and to, to bring your experiences into policy. I, I know that you're making a difference every single day. So thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you for these questions, Jason. And I'm just thankful to work alongside a lot of amazing people, people that are listening right now and people that I know of and people that I haven't come across yet. So I'm just very, I feel very fortunate to be working alongside of a lot of, a lot of change agents. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you for this. And we look forward to talking with you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Like this interview? Subscribe to the Leaders Table podcast on SoundCloud. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the Leaders Table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 